through 2 Chronicles chapter 1, possibly through 4, not sure, as we look at Solomon's temple and what King David had set aside for his son to build. 2 Chronicles chapter 1. Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him, and he exalted him exceedingly. So Solomon spoke to all of Israel, to the captains of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges and to every leader, to all of Israel, and to the heads of their father's houses. Let's pray. Father, as we do get closer to the election, Lord, we just ask for your hand to be upon our nation. Lord, that we would vote for life, uh, Lord, for liberty. And so, Lord, that through this word today, your word that won't return void, no matter where we are, your spirit speaks to the church. That you'd spend time with us tonight, Lord, that you'd bless those serving in and around our building. In Jesus' name, amen. No um, uh, First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. Do you know that? There is none in the original. It's one giant scroll. Now, later on, chapter and verses were added, so we, we basically, no break, we go right into Second Chronicles. Chapter 1, Now Solomon the son of David was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. At this point, David from last week, was telling us that Solomon, his son, was still young, very young, and it is very possible that his age ranges from 12 to 17 right now. That's when he takes control of the kingdom. Think about that 12-year-old you have in your life. Would you give the king the keys to this kind of kingdom? Nope. <laughs> Unless verse 1 is happening. Did you pick it up on verse 1? It says, and he was strengthened, but it also says, and the Lord, circle this word, his God. At some point, Solomon had a basic or uh, had some kind of faith that was noticeable, not only to the Lord, but to the chronicler as well as king. So um, he has this faith. Now listen. I don't want to blow it, but Solomon's life is a train wreck. On top of a train wreck, on top of a plane crash, on top of an economic crash, and uh, add a little socialist revolution. That's Solomon's life. But how does he start? He starts out as a very young boy, much like his father. He starts out very innocent. And as we will see tonight, starts out with the right heart. But here's the problem. It doesn't matter how we start. It's how we get through the finish line. That's what's important. Paul makes that point all through the New Testament. To finish the race. The race in which we are running is a long distance run. It's cross country. And I mean really cross country. It is not a marathon. And so Solomon's life is, as we will see, one that's an amazing description of a wasted life. Someone who, in the beginning, you're like, you want to root for this guy. 
But pretty soon you're like, all right, the Lord needs to take this guy right out. Well, let's continue. And so Solomon spoke to all of Israel. Notice he brings together all of the heads of the father's houses and the judges and the leaders, and he speaks to them. And if he's 12 years old, how does that go? But if the Lord is with him and people know that the Lord is his God, well, it really doesn't matter what his age is, isn't it? I mean, listen, my, my son won't listen to this, so it's kind of cool, but it's really neat to have Micah up with me doing the roundtable chat, and he, go, he goes and does all the research and all that. It's wonderful. There would be no doubt that anybody would say that he is with the Lord. I'd give him the keys right now. See you later. I'm going to Arrowwood. Well, you, you can see that, can't you? Well, so too, these men could, and therefore they could fall in line and there was no coup d'etat uh, here with Solomon. Then Solomon, verse 3, with all the assembly with him, went to the high place that was at Gibeah, for the tabernacle of meeting of God was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. But David had brought up the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim to the place that David prepared for it, and he pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Now, the bronze altar that uh, Beziel, my mind just went blank, Beziel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, and he put it before the tabernacle of the Lord. And Solomon in the assembly sought him there. And so Solomon went up to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of meeting, and he offered a thousand burnt offerings unto it. So uh, Solomon now takes the reign as leader of Israel. He sacrifices unto the Lord to this brand new altar that we will see in a little bit. And verse 7 says, now after that is done on that night, which means that very night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask, what shall I give to you? Now, if he is truly 12 or 13 or 14, let alone 17, You are giving the keys to the kingdom of whatever he wants. What would you you ask from the Lord if he said to you tonight in a dream after coming to church, ask away? Would it be riches? Would it be the things that ultimately will bring Solomon down, which we'll get to? But notice what Solomon does. Solomon said to God, You have shown great mercy to David, my father, and you have made me king in his stead. Now, O Lord God, let your promises to David, my father, be established, for you have made me king over a people from the dust of the earth, and it's in multitude. Now, please give me wisdom and knowledge that I might go out and come in before these people For who can judge this great people, notice, of yours? There's a lot there in that verse, isn't there? Number one, Solomon recognizes that they're not his people, they're God's people. So right away, that's a nice hit, isn't it? But then he says to him, please give me wisdom and understanding, because if you're young, do you not want that when you're dealing with adults? 
Look, I don't even know what he just said. But Lord, would you give me wisdom and understanding so that I would have knowledge how to judge over your people. Now, God said to Solomon, verse 11, because this was in your heart and because God knew that and that you have not asked for riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, nor you've asked for long life, but you've asked for wisdom and knowledge to yourself and that you might judge my people over whom I've made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you And I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have had who were before you, nor shall any be after that. And so Solomon came to Jerusalem from the high place that was in Gibeon and before the tabernacle of meaning, and he reigned over Israel. One thing I want to note there in verse 12 is not only, or in 11 and 12, is not only did God give him uh, up and above But what he did give him in verse 12 was wisdom and knowledge. And please note with me, it is granted. (laughs) You know how we talk about how everything we have is from the Lord? Even smarts, it's granted to you. I'm a naturally smart person. No, you're not. Only if God gave it to you. I I just blew everybody's IQ out of the water, didn't I? The only reason why you have what you have is because it has been granted. And when we talked about that, about uh, wealth and, and prestige and all of that, right? All of that comes from the Lord, but so does knowledge and wisdom. Remember, knowledge is just facts. Wisdom is how to apply that knowledge. Better that you ask for wisdom than ask for knowledge. Because, listen, we need more. We don't need any more knowledge. There's plenty of it out there. There's lots of false knowledge. So we need to ask the Lord, Lord, can I have wisdom to determine what Google site is correct? Right? Well, I saw it on the Internet. Not all of it. A good majority of it is pretty false out there. And so, in verse 13, we're told that Solomon now reigns over all of Israel. In verse 14, it says, Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed in the chariot cities with the king of Jerusalem. And also the king made silver and gold as common as Jerusalem is stone. Now, if you go to Jerusalem with us or Israel, the one thing that Israel has a lot of is stones. So the fact that he made all of this as common as stones, tremendous wealth. He made the cedars as abundant as the sycamores, which are in the lowland. And Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Keva. And the king's merchant brought them into Keva at a current price. And they also inquired and imported Egypt, a chariot for 600 shekels of silver, and a horse for 150. Thus, through their agents, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Assyria. So uh, Solomon sets up this little uh, chariot and horse uh, business. But notice with me as you've gone through here that Solomon starts to, as he is reigning, he is gathering unto him uh, chariots and horsemen, but also gold and silver. And then later on, we will see 
he gathers unto himself a 700 wives and 300 concubines. Keep your place here. Let's turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 17. It just happened to be that my family and I were in this section this morning, which I, I told the kids we're going to be here tonight. Uh, by the way, this is why having a devotion time each day is so much fun because you don't know what God will use in that day where you are. And so in Deuteronomy 17, when Moses is giving his final uh, talk to the nation of Israel, he says in verse 14, When you come to the land which the Lord God has given you, and possess it, and dwell in it, and note with me that the people of Israel will say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Now, without going back, that was right and that was wrong, but never a king. But notice how it always is with us. We want to be like everybody else. Well, I want to be like them. And here's the dangerous thing inside of the church, that we want to be just like the world. And God says, no, 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 that's not how the church operates. The church operates totally different. And so to Israel, they wanted a king. Well, God said, hey, if you have a king, he's going he's gonna to tax you. I know, that's a shocker. He's going to take your manservants, your maidservants. He's going to take your property. He's going to take tithe. He's going to take part of your crop. If that, and they're like, yep, that's what we want. But note with me what God says, because he knows that they will ask for it, and he knows ultimately he will give them, sadly, what they want. He says, surely uh, you shall uh, set a king over you whom the Lord God chooses. Notice, one among your own brethren, and you shall set a king over you, and you may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now, I was telling this to my kids today in verse 15. Uh, part of the Constitution is uh, taken from that verse. Anybody figure that out while I take a sip of water? Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Not a foreigner should be the political head or, for our purposes, the President of the United States. Now, Arnold Schwarzenegger tried to change that. It's important for the nation of Israel to have a Jew over them so that they won't, if they had an Egyptian or a Hittite or somebody else, they would have loyalty to that nation. And so, no, whatever the king is, he will be amongst your people. Here it is in verse 16. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Did we just read that? From Solomon, how long has he been king? Well, we really don't know the time difference there, but it really doesn't matter. He's doing exactly what he is told not to do. And before you think to yourself, oh, but he didn't know. Wait, here we go. Nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, for the Lord has said to you, you shall not return in that way again. Neither shall you multiply wise for himself, he'll, he'll do that, lest his heart be turned away, which it says it does. It says his foreign wives turns the heart of Solomon away. Nor shall he be greedy or multiply silver and gold for himself. Okay, this guy, he is strike three at this point. Also it shall be, When he, that's the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, listen, 
that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one of the priests and the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it, notice, all the days of his life, that he might learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of the law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted at a lifted up above his brethren and he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right hand or to the left and that he might prolong his days in his kingdom he and his children in the midst of Israel so Solomon can't say I didn't know because it was his job to sit down and to write the first five books of the law so that he would have them and it would be his devotional reading notice all the days of his life so how many times did Solomon read, you shall not multiply horses? Well, don't, don't look at those stables. Or wives, don't even look at that. Don't look at the... He violated all of those. Turn back now to Second Chronicles. Chapter 1. So Solomon, he will ultimately violate all of these and it will be his downfall. Chapter 2. Then Solomon determined to build a temple for the name of the Lord, a royal house for himself. And Solomon selected. Now, those of you who are exciting about those DIY building shows, you're going to be very excited about this section. Those of you who are not, you can go to sleep. Solomon selected 70,000 men to bear the burdens, 8,000 to Korist, 8,000 just to be a stonemason in the mountains, 3,600 to oversee them, so you need those bosses. And then Solomon sent Hiram, king of Tyre, saying, As you have dealt with my father David, and sent him cedars to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me. For behold, I am building a temple for the name of the Lord. Please note with me, my God, to dedicate it to him, to burn before him sweet incense for a continuing showbread, for the burnt offering morning and evening and on the Sabbaths and on the new moons and on the feast of the Lord our God. This is an ordinance forever to Israel. And the temple which I built will be great, for our God is greater than all the little g-gods. But, but who is able to build him a temple? Since heaven and the heavens of heaven cannot contain him, who am I that I should build him a temple except to burnt sacrifice before him? Listen, he has the right heart. He just blows it later on. But he has this right heart of building the temple that it's not his temple, that it's the Lord's temple. Therefore, send me at once a skillful, I, I'm sorry, a, a man skillful to work in gold and silver, in bronze and in iron, in purple and crimson and blue, who has been skilled to engrave with the skillful men who are with me in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David my father provided. So he's asking for, for all intents and purposes, a one head guy that can do that which somebody in Israel cannot do. Also, 
Send me cedars and cypress and alum logs from Lebanon. For I know your servants have skill to cut the timber in Lebanon, and indeed my servants will be with your servants. To prepare timber for me in abundance, for the temple which I am about to build shall be great and wonderful. And indeed, I will give your servants, the woodsmen who cut timber, 20,000 cores of ground wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20 baths of wine, I'm sorry, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of oil. Solomon is not going to take advantage of any worker. He is going to pay them up and above what they would normally get paid in Lebanon. He wants them to do this job so it gets done. So you know what he does? He pays double, triple, quadruple their rate so that they will get this job done. Very smart young man. Verse, 10, uh, verse 11, then Hiram, king of Tyre, answered in writing, which he sent to Solomon, because the Lord loves his people. He said, he has made you king over them. Hiram also said, listen to this pagan king. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who made heaven and earth, for he has given King David a wise son, endowed him with prudence and understanding, who will build a temple Notice, for the Lord, he uses Yahweh as the name and a royal house for himself. Listen, at some point, maybe Hiram, uh, as David is corresponding with Hiram, and, and there's this relationship, uh, maybe we will see Hiram in heaven because of the influence that King David had upon him. And now he says, I have sent skillful men, endowed with understanding, Huram, my master craftsman, the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan, and his father was a man of Tyrant. Half Jew, half Gentile is going to be this guy. Notice he is living in the territory of Hiram, and now he is coming back. Think about how wonderful this is for this guy who has been living away from Israel, his mother who is a Jew. By the way, in order to be a, a Jew, it needed to be on your mother's side. Very important. So now he is coming back into the land and blow your mind to build God's house. What an amazing job. Notice that he is skilled to work in gold and silver, bronze and in iron, stone and wood, purple and blue and fine linen and crimson, and to make any engraving and to accomplish any plan which may be given to him with your skillful men and with the skillful men of my Lord King David, your father. Now, therefore, the weed and the barley and the oil and the wine which my Lord has spoken of, let him send it to his servants. and We will cut wood from Lebanon as much as you need, and he will bring it to you in rafts by the sea to Joppa. So go to Israel with us. Joppa's still there. Joppa's been uh, one of the oldest seaports in Israel, and so they would take them from up by Beirut down the Mediterranean, pretty cool, uh, and then right into Joppa, um, which is, oh, about 20 miles, 30 miles up to Jerusalem, so not very far uh, up into there, and I could be wrong with that number, but it sure, certainly didn't seem that long when 
we've, we've been on the bus there. So uh, he says, we're going to send it to Joppa, and then you'll carry it up to Jerusalem. And Solomon numbered all the aliens, or the foreign workers, in the land after the census in which, his David, uh, which David, his father, had numbered them. And there were found to be 153,600. That is a huge workforce. But please note with me that, now, listen, tell me why you're laughing. You know where I'm going with that. That's not fair. <laughs> they wanted to know what foreigner was in their land. Why is that so wrong? What's so wrong with having a record of somebody entering the country? Well, it's, it's biblical. It's right here. And then, verse 18, And he made 70,000 of them bearers of burdens, 80,000 stone cutters in the mountains, and 3,600 overseers to make the people work. Verse 1, chapter 3, Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, and the Lord appeared, I'm sorry, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. We're going to see that this project takes about seven years to accomplish. We gave you a handout as well. Hopefully you got one. If not, uh, uh, you can pick one up on the way out. We'll show you some images on the screens as well as home. Don't fret. We will show you two. So this is about a seven-year project. And please note what we, we mentioned this last time. Uh, last week, as David had bought the threshing floor from Ornon the Jebusite, please note with me the phrase, the place, because it is the same that we saw last time, the place. And so when Jesus goes to be crucified, it says, and therefore he went to the place. There was only one flat place on the Temple Mount, only one. The rest of it, Uh, that they have uncovered is very hilly and rocky. There is only one place on the Temple Mount where there was a flat level place. And the Muslims have a shrine over it. Uh, it, It's not the Dome of the Rock. It's not the Alaska Mox. It's north of the Dome of the Rock, which leads us to believe that in the tribulation period, uh, there's a very good possibility that the Dome of the Rock doesn't have to be destroyed or even moved. In fact, Ezekiel says that there is a wall that separates the holy from the profane. So it is very possible. By the way, we won't be here. We'll watch it in heaven. Probably not. We'll be in heaven. So it is specific about the place. It is the only place where there is a flat section, and this is where they're going to build this temple. And so he began to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. And this is the foundation which Solomon had laid for the building of the house of the Lord. The length was 60 cubits by cubits according to the former measure. Now remember, they're coming back from Babylon, from the Medes and the Persians, from being in exile. And why they say... Now, these are the things that just interest me. I realize this may not concern anybody, but it's interesting. 
The former measurement is before they left. So it's an Israeli cubit. It's not a Babylonian cubit, and it's not a Medes and the Persians cubit because there was all different types of cubits, kind of like we have inches, and the rest of the world has lost their mind with that metric stuff. Amen. You ever try to do metric? I don't even want to go there. My mind did. So according to the former measurement, and its width was 20 cubits. If you're taking note, it is only 90 feet long by 30 feet wide. You think that it would be even bigger. You think it would be like a football field, this huge building. Nope. Roll the first image, Micah. It's not that big. We're going to see that we have the altar there the bronze laver in the front and the other washing areas, but it isn't that big at all, only 30 feet wide. Guys, our sanctuary here is 40 feet to the back wall, so it's not that it would fit in here. It wouldn't be as long, but it isn't that big because nobody's going in there except the priest. <laughs> the, the only thing that's in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. So this doesn't need to be. Now, the whole Temple Mount structure is enormous. It is almost like a football field. It's big. It's huge. Because most of what's going on in the temple happens outside of the temple. So the Temple Mount, that's where the majority of it goes on. So uh, we're going to talk about the altar there. And notice that it's high up off the ground. There are steps leading to it. And that's where they would burn the offering every morning and every night. And the smoke would go up and people every morning as they rise up would see smoke coming out of the temple. And as they would go to bed, before they would go to bed, they would see the smoke rising up. And they would see that uh, from the temple mount. You can just keep that up there. And the vestibule that was in front of the sanctuary was 20 cubits across the width in the house, and the height was 120. And he overlaid it inside with pure gold. Uh, the large room he paneled with cypress, and he overlaid with fine gold, and he carved palm trees and chain work in it, and he decorated the house with precious stones and beauty, and the gold was from the gold of Parim. And so he overlaid the house, the beams, the doorpost, its walls, its doors with gold, and he called, carved cherub on the walls. It was about 20 tons of gold that he used. Micah, find that inside image that's got the, um, not that one, the next one. We'll get to that in a minute. Oh, now they're, nope, that one. Now, can you imagine walking into this completely gold-lined? And the lampstands that are aligned there, you can't really see it that well, but see all the carvings in there? That's what he is describing. So as the, by the way, no one saw this in Israel, only the Levites. No one could see this, but the Levites, because no one had access to the throne room of God except for the high priest and only the high priest once a year that would go on the other side of the veil. All of this, are you ready to be blown? is to point to Jesus in the fact that we, as human beings, cannot approach a holy God. We must need a mediator, and that mediator is Christ Jesus. All of this 
is to point the picture to this Galilean that would come later on. Amazing, isn't it? By the way, this is a picture, the Bible says, too, of the throne room of God. So, 20 tons of gold inside. I mean, it's just amazing what it would have looked like. Uh, And then the cedar beams there lined and all of the carvings that are inside of there. So, really amazing. You, You can just keep that one up. And so he made the most holy place, so that is behind the veil, although that doesn't really look like a veil, uh, but behind the veil was the most holy place, verse 8, and its length was according to the width of the house, 20 cubits, and its width 20 cubits, and he overlaid it with 600 talents of fine gold. The weight of the nails were 50 shekels of gold, and he overlaid the upper area with gold. And in the most holy place, he made two cherubs fashioned by carving and overlaid them with gold. And the wings of the cherub were 20 cubits in overall length. One wing of one cherub was five cubits, touching the wall of the room. And the other wing was five cubits, touching the wing of the other cherub. And one wing on the other side of the cherub was five cubits, touching the wall of the other room. And the other wing was five uh, cubits touching the wing of the overall cherub. And the wings of these cherubs spanned 20 cubits overall. And they stood on their feet and they faced inward. Now listen, without an image, you know, you know, they're just, you're just Charlie Brown's teacher, right? Show that image. You got a little teaser before. So those steps going up would have a veil in front of it that only the high priest could go. No one in Israel ever saw this. The only ones that saw this were the workmen that put it together, and once they put that veil in, and once it was dedicated, and the presence of the Lord came in that temple, no one ever went behind that veil except for the high priest. Blow your mind, huh? But check. uh, can you imagine walking in there? So you got the Ark of the Covenant. You see that in the middle there? Mike, are you showing those people online? It's wonderful technology. So we've got the two cherubs. Their wing is touching one wall. Their wings are touching each other. The other wing is going that way, and the Ark of the Covenant is in the middle. I mean, think about that. Think about the high priest and the thousands of years that would go in between this. And the guy that got to go in there for the first time, his mind is blown. He's never seen it before. He's heard about it, and then he walks in, and that's exactly what he sees. Now, mm -hmm, 14, and he made a veil of blue, purple, crimson, and fine linen and wove cherubs into it. And he made in front of the two pillars 35 cubits high and the capitals were on each of them where five cubits. Let's hold off on verse 15. Look at verse 14. So, We know from the New Testament, we don't know if this was the size of it in the Old Testament, but in Jesus' day, tradition tells us that the veil was 18 inches thick. I don't even know how you do that. What kind of sewing machine do you got to have to put that 18? Now, remember, 18 inches. This is the second temple done that Ezra puts together and then later King Herod throws all of this money towards it and he builds it up even grander 18 inches thick 
It doesn't tell us the thickness here, but man, in Jesus' day, it was rent from not bottom to top, but from top to bottom. Only God was able to open up that temple, and now we can boldly come to the throne of grace. Isn't that great? Now, let's go to the uh, first slide. Do they have the pillars in the front of that? Let's see. Mm -hmm. Yep, there they are. See the gold pillars in the front? We'll talk about those. And he made in front of the temple two pillars, 35 cubits high, and the capitals were the top of them were five cubits. He made wreaths of chain work as in the inner sanctuary, and he put them on top of the pillars, and he made 100 pomegranates, and he put them on the wreaths and chain work. The detail, no wonder why it took seven years to build. And then he set up pillars before the temple, and on the right hand of each and one on the left, those are those pillars, and he called the name of the right one Jason, and the name of the second one was Boaz. So as you're going into the temple, you see he is established in his strength. That's what they would see. Now, only a few people would get to actually go into that. But from outside, you would be able to see the name Jason and Boaz. And again, he has established it, God, and in his strength. Last chapter, chapter 4 tonight. Moreover, he made a bronze altar, 20 cubits its length, 20 cubits its width, and 10 cubits its height. So it was about 30 feet square. Go back to that first slide so we can see that. That's the altar there um, to the right there. That's about a 30-foot square. It's a huge altar. Um, and then there were steps that went up 10 cubits high to get to the top of it. It was enormous because of the amount of sacrifices that they needed to do. Josephus tells us that in the days of Jesus, on the Passover, over 2 million lambs were sacrificed. The blood that came out of the temple, by the way, there's a trough that come out where they would sacrifice and then they would take it to the top, but there was a trough that came out of the temple and ran down to um, the valley below, the valley of Hinnom below, where the garbage heap is. Remember, we talked about that about hell a couple of weeks ago in Luke. And it, the blood would just flow out of that. Two million lambs, Josephus, in the time of Jesus. A, a huge. Hence, you need a big, a pretty big altar to accomplish that. Now, remember, this is Temple One. It will be completely destroyed by the Babylonians. And then Temple 2 will be built. And when Temple 2 is built, the old guys go, there's nothing. You should have seen Solomon's temple. That's how grand this temple was. Okay. Mm -hmm. Two. And then he made a sea of cast bronze. So that's in front. That's that big bathtub. Everybody see the big bathtub? Ten cubits from one brim to the other. And it was completely round. Its height was five cubits, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. It's cast in bronze. Does anybody know about casting? How big this? The metallurgy alone. They didn't have blast furnaces like we have. 
So to make this thing one solid piece cast is amazing. It is 15 feet across, and it is seven and a half feet deep. That's what I talk about a pool. That's the first uh, above-ground pool, by the way. That's all I got tonight. And under its likeness of oxen encircling it was uh, 10 to a cubit all the way around the sea, and the oxen were cast in two rows when it was cast. And it stood on 12 oxen, three looking towards the north, three looking towards the west, three looking towards the south, and three looking towards the east. And it was set upon them, and all of their backs pointed inward. And it was a hand breast thick. Put your hand out. Hand breast thick of bronze. Let's just call it six inches. Solid. Of Again, I took metal shop and I did a little castings. But can you imagine something 15 feet by seven and a half feet deep? A hand breast. That is amazing. How did they move it? I don't even want to... The foundation stones, which are still there today, Solomon's foundation stones. So what they did is to the Temple Mount, they went in there with probably like a D8 uh, Caterpillar dozer, right? Of course they had those back then, right? And they leveled the whole thing off, and then they put foundation stones, then they filled it back in, and they made made it level. Then they built on top of it. The foundation stones are still there. And there are stones that if you go with us to Israel and you go inside of the temple into the rabbi's temple, that you cannot put a penknife in between the cracks of the rock. We can't do that today. Let alone the size of these stones are almost 40 feet. I think one of them is 60 feet. They don't even know how deep it is. They don't know how it was possible to even move it without any modern equipment. They have no idea how it was done. Bigger than the stones of Egypt. By the way, it's my own opinion that the Jews had a part in putting those things together because now they come and they do this amazing building project. But that's just me. We'll laugh about it in heaven. These stones are so big. They are amazing. In fact, outside of the Temple Mount, as you come into Israel, when the Romans threw down the stones and they crashed below, there are still some of them today that are so huge, I have no idea even how the soldiers pushed them off of the Temple Mount, and they crashed right through the bottom uh, retaining floor. You can see all that. When you walk into that cave and see some of those stones, it blows your mind that God himself had a hand in putting together this temple. Uh, it, I'm sorry, I, I am amazed every time I walk into that rabbi's tunnel and see those stones. I've seen them multiple times, and every time I'm just blown away. I, I really should pull out the photos of those. It's kind of hard to see because you're usually going in there at night, and the lighting's real terrible in there. But the stones are so big. In fact, they have, they have one of them marked. I think it's the largest stone that has ever been, that they've a cut stone. What does it have to do with this? Nothing really, but that's the foundation stones of that huge temple. So this uh, big doughboy pool was a hand breast thick, huge, right? It was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom, and it contained 3,000 baths. 
Now, don't think of a modern-day bath. There was, a, there was an Israeli bath. There was a Babylonian bath. There was, everybody had different size baths. We really don't know exactly uh, how much it held, uh, but we do know it was 15 feet by 7 feet deep. And he made 10 lampstands of gold according to their design and set them in the temple. Micah, do an inside photo again of the lampstands. I think it's the last one. There you go. You can see them as they lined up there. Five on the right side, five on the left side, and he made 100 bowls of gold. <clears throat> Furthermore, he made the court of the priest and the, the great court of the doors of the court, and he overlaid these doors with bronze. And he made a sea on the right side towards the east side, and Huram made the pots, excuse me, the shovels, the bowls. So Huram finished doing the work that he was supposed to do for King David and for the house of the Lord. And the two pillars and the bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the two pillars, two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars. And he also made carts and lavers on all of the carts, and one sea and 12 oxen underneath them, and the pots and the shovels and the forks and all the articles, Huram, the master craftsman made of burnished bronze, and King Solomon, or I'm sorry, for King Solomon in the house of the Lord. And in the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds between Succoth and Zerida. And Solomon had these articles made in such great abundance that the weight of the bronze was not determined. There was so much, they, they didn't even know how much they used. Thus Solomon had finished making, made for the house of God, the altar of gold, the table on which the showbread, the lampstands with their gold, pure gold, to burn in the prescribed manner in front of the inner sanctuary with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, of pure gold, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, the censers of pure gold. And as for the entry of the sanctuary, its inner doors to the most holy place and the doors of the main hall of the temple were of gold. Now, I just want to read verse 1 of the next chapter. So all the work of Solomon was done for the house of the Lord. It was finished until Solomon brought the things which his father, King David, had dedicated of silver and gold and all the furnishings, and he put them into the treasuries of the house of God. So the, the building is finished. We'll pick this up next week, Lord willing. But the temple's not done until the Ark of the Covenant comes in, and the temple's not done until the Ark of the Covenant comes in and the presence of God comes down and falls upon the temple, to which we will see next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for an amazing structure, Lord, that you gave the plans to David and David to Solomon. And Solomon was able to accomplish this because of what King David had done, bringing safety to the area in all of these metals in abundance. And Hiram, the king of Tyre, bringing these. He had good relationships with the kings around him. Lord, it's an amazing structure, but it's nothing compared to heaven and what we will see soon and very soon. 
Lord, thank you that this is a picture and a type and that Jesus fulfills the fact that we can now come to you. We can boldly come to the throne of grace. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace that's new every day. Lord, thank you that we can forgive and that we can be a part of the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, that you would just grant us continual wisdom and understanding in the present world in which we live in. Lord, we long to see your face, and so we pray that your soon return is close at hand. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.